Hello again, everybody. Very nice to see you all. Uh, welcome to this 70th episode of Ask Abhijit. Only two more episodes to go in this year, so let's have some fun. All right, let's see who all is there today. Oh, first of all, let me explain. Uh, today is a live chat session, as I'm sure you know. I'll be taking questions only from the live chat. So if you have questions that I have not answered before, keep them ready and I will hopefully pick up your question. I know there will be thousands of questions. I'll pick uh, as many as I can. Right. So uh, let me see who all is there. I can see Krish, Pratik, Sports Only, Sayan Roy, Sanat Hoibi, Abhishek Mukherjee, Kumar Yadav, Abhishek, Ankur Works, KD Vaughan, Great, Out of Everything, Keshav Mishra, Jay Dikshit, Lavesh, Ashutosh, Ayushman, Rudra, Aditya, Kingster Gaming, KCO Birva, Macper, Kiran, Cherry, Abhishek, Abhirup, Pankaj, Jaydeep, Vinay, Vanshi, Dhruv, Megastar, Dictatorship is Best, Ayush Yadav, Ayush Vaishnav, Anshuman, Shubang, Dominic, Sunaina, Shilpa, Vikas, and many more people. Great to see you all. Great to see you all. I hope you're doing well. Okay, guys, girls, ladies, gentlemen, let's have your questions and I shall answer, th answer them. <clears throat> all right, let's see what all we have here. Do we have any questions? Do we have any questions? Uh, <laughs> Praveen says, how to be motivated? If you, well, how to be motivated? You need to have a big goal. If you have a big goal in life, you have the motivation to achieve it. And that big goal has to be something that comes from within you, not somebody, something that someone imposes on you and forces you to do. You have a boring 9 to 5 job. You're forced to do things that you may not really enjoy. Right? In that case, where's the motivation? You're just doing it because you earn money from there and that's why you have to do it. But if there is a big goal that you have, a big goal, maybe 10 years down the line, you want to achieve that, then you have the motivation, right? From inside, because it's a goal you set for yourself, then you're motivated. So find your purpose in life. First, understand yourself. You cannot find a purpose in life unless you first understand who you are. And most people, unfortunately, go through life without ever understanding themselves. So do some self-introspection. It takes time. It takes time. But you have to understand yourself. You have to understand what lies within, right? What your values are, what kind of a world you would like to see long term, and then try to make it happen. So that's the kind of thing that uh, leads to motivation. Once you have an objective, you don't have any problem of motivation. It's always people who are unmotivated are people who lack an objective. And that typically happens when you're very young and you don't know, you don't understand life, you don't understand yourself, you don't understand the world. So that's why you have to understand the world. You have to, that's why it's important to read history, understand culture, and then also understand yourself. Then you will understand where, where you stand, where the world is going, what is right with the world, what is wrong with the world. And then you can have some objective for yourself that this is what I want to do to shape the world in a certain way and then there will be no issue of motivation so that's the kind of thing you need to do okay okay some more questions i can see hi hello everyone yeah let's let's go down and let's find some question um uh, okay let's see 
I have already spoken about Bappa Rawal in the past, so you can check that out. Um, okay, Mehul says, if we find out an intelligent life form outside of our solar system, then what affects on religions and their effects on our society? I don't see any effect on religion. Uh, if we discover an intelligent life form outside of our solar system, it is alarm bells because they could be more intelligent than us and maybe they would want to harm us. You always have to assume the worst when you see when you're walking down the road, 3 a.m. in the morning, everything is dark outside and you see some stranger coming towards you. What do you do? You go and say, hey, brother, how's it going? Or do you be careful? You have to assume the worst when you're in an unknown place in complete darkness, middle of the night, and you see a stranger approaching, you have to take all possible precautions. The same goes for it, discovering intelligent life forms anywhere else. If we have never been so uh, fortunate, I would say, as to having, have dis uh, having ever discovered another species beyond our planet, beyond our solar system. If we do, it has to be with extreme caution. We have to approach everything with extreme caution. First of all, we should not advertise our location that, hey guys, hello, listen to us. We are here. This is our location. Don't do that. Please don't do that. But we are doing it. That's not a very good idea. So, uh, but if we discover any such intelligent species outside of our solar system, what effect will it have on religions? Uh, I don't see any effect on religions. Religions, uh, the Abrahamic religions are extraordinarily dogmatic. It's all in the book and nothing outside. So the book is, is not going to change. Whatever books they, they follow, each religion has one book, one, one sp major book, central book. So that is never going to change and therefore there will be no change in the religion. When it comes to other uh, cultures, etc., well, if you look at uh, the Dharmic religions, Dharmic so-called religions, the Dharmic uh, continuum, the dharmic practices, the dharmic civilization. In that case, we have always, I mean, our ancestors have always believed that there are multiple lokas, right? Multiple multiple spheres of existence and all that. So that essentially says that there are worlds beyond our own, our, our, our earth, our solar system, and therefore it's not going to change anything about that. It's, it's, it's going to be like, yeah, we already knew this. So that's the kind of thing there is. It's more about technology and defense and all that that we need to look at. It will not really change religion what effect will it have on society well some people will go in panic mode some people will be hysteric some people will say oh let's welcome them with garlands aliens and so on and so forth so it's it depends you know it's going to have a wide range of effects on society okay Anish Kulkarni says, why do sadhus and rishis have long hair and beard whereas monks are always clean shaved and we find more monks in Buddhism than Hinduism and vice versa for sadhus and rishis. Why so? Listen, there is no Hinduism, there is no Buddhism, it's the same thing. And Hinduism was, was more or less destroyed in India. All the monasteries, all the uh, universities, everything was wiped out and therefore this practice disappeared. In other countries, Thailand, Burma, China, Korea, Japan, etc., the more uh, the practices continued, which no longer continued inside India. And over there, for whatever reason, because of historical, uh, uh, because of the chronology, uh, they were at the time more influenced by ideas that are now known as, now, now uh, 
categorized as Buddhist ideas, even though there are clear elements of, of overall dharmic practices, including what is called Hinduism in there. So that's why you see these monks continuing the same traditions that were prevalent in India, in these other countries. And they are all wearing uh, those saffron robes, everything, which even dharmic, all, even Hindus wore, right? And, and wear. So, but now it is categorized as Buddhism. If you go to Thailand, yeah, they do follow the precepts of the Buddha, but they also follow, uh, they also worship Lord Shiva, Lord Ganesh, and various other, Lord Vishnu, and so on. So it's wrong to call it Buddhism. It's wrong to call it anything. It's just Dharma. So, we also had the same thing in Hinduism, right? What we call Hinduism. It's just that it's no longer prevalent in India. It's been destroyed. Our culture has been destroyed and uprooted and eradicate, eradicated from our land. And that's why we feel that only Buddhists have this thing. Because today's academics and media, everyone, they call those practices Buddhist practices. It's not the case. These are Dharmic practices. Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, everybody has, has had monkhood and all that, right? So it's not, because Hinduism has been destroyed in India, you may not realize it. You may not realize it because you are all living in a Lala land. Hinduism has been destroyed in India, right? You are living in an enslaved state, whether you realize it or not. India is not a free country. India is still under foreign occupation, whether you realize it or not. So Hinduism has been destroyed in India. All the ancient practices have been wiped out. And that's why it looks like whatever happens abroad is all Buddhist. And it was never there in Hinduism. So that sort of thing. That is not the case. Now about long hair and beard. See, when you're a monk... It means you're a youngster, you're a student, you are being initiated into the long, grueling practice of, of, uh, of, of being uh, an ascetic, of, of spending your entire life in contemplation and study into the scholarly life. It's a totally different kind of life. Yeah. So when you are a monk, you are being initiated into this and you have to observe very strict discipline. Because only then will you learn how to uh, go higher in this in this line in this in this, in this line of work, which is the scholarly line of work. The uh, the uh, yeah. So that's what it is. So that's why when you are a monk, you have to uh, observe extreme discipline, and you are told what to do so that you learn quickly instead of trying to find out on your own. So you're told what to do. You are told to live a certain kind of life in which there is absolute discipline. You shave off your head, your hair, your hair, you shave off your beard, everything. You wear saffron robes. You wake up at a particular time. You do certain things at certain times. And it's complete regimented life. And it's a lot of discipline, a lot of study and all that. And, and, and serving, the, serving the master, serving the monastery, the university, wherever you uh, are and so on and so forth. So that's how it is. But once you are past a certain stage as a monk, I suppose you would uh, want to go into the forest and contemplate or or move away from society, go to a forest and, and, and write whatever you want to write because you now have the ideas and all. In that case, you don't have the time to shave and to cut your hair and all that because your entire focus, entire existence is focused on whatever work you're trying to produce. So in the past, you had these rishis, sadhus, etc., who would go off into forests, who would go off into the mountains, spend a few years there and forget everything else and just work. And, and uh, write their great works 
whatever it, it all added up and contributed to the enormous corpus of literature of Indian civilization. And similarly, you find people everywhere in the world who go off into this, this uh, self-imposed uh, exile or hiatus. For instance, Isaac Newton is known to have disappeared for 10 years or so while he was writing his Principia Mathematica. And uh, Albert Einstein also disappeared for 10 years while he was uh, while he was formulating the theory of general relativity. It was a big struggle. So that's how it is. So once you are done with the initiation into this work and into this lifestyle, then you can go off and do whatever you want. And most people actually do not go and produce some great work. So they remain in the monastery and they remain clean shaven and, and uh, bald headed, headed and all that. So it all depends. The sadhus and rishis that we have, that we had in the past, they used to be exceptional people, rishis especially, and so on. So I expect that even a rishi who would have long hair and a beard when he or she, he was a youngster or she was when yeah it's a he it's a male thing beard so when he was a youngster he would also have had to shave off and and uh, shave off the hair the hair as well that's how it goes so that I hope explains in short in brief what this is about okay. Vishal says, do you think one person who is as influential as Hitler and intelligent as Chanakya can change the face of the world, of, of the, can change the face of India on the world level? Well, I would never want to speak about, about Adolf Hitler. That guy destroyed his country. He ended up destroying his country. And that guy was a, a monster. He killed so many people. That is not the way to do things. But unfortunately, that's how things work in the world, whether we like it or not. I would never consider Adolf Hitler to be any kind of hero. But yes, he was somebody who did matter, who did shape the world as we know it. So yes, he is one of the important figures in history, in the, at least in the 20th century. So what will it... See, uh, change the face of India on the world level. What does that mean? You mean the impression of India or the actual uh, internal uh, power structure of India or the level of hard power of India? I, I, I don't care what people think about India. It does matter to some extent, but everything will change once India becomes a stronger country with greater hard power. Like I've always said in the past, if you want people to respect you, you have to must first make them fear you. You have to first develop the economic muscle and the military muscle. And then you use it for good, don't use it for bad. But at least when you have that muscle and it's demonstrated that you are willing to use it when required, then people will fear you. And that automatically brings respect. So now. Will can one person change India? If you look at the past ten thousand years of history, if you look at the past ten thousand years of history, human history is nothing but a sequence of great men and women. Usually, it's men because in the past it was all about brawn, right? It was not about only intelligence. You needed intelligence, but you needed the the uh, the muscle, the masculinity in the past because the world was a very harsh place. I suspect it may go back to that in the future. So the thing is. The history of the human species is the history of one great individual after another. Even the history of India, if you look at the people who have shaped India in the past thousands of years of Indian history, it's always been great kings and queens. So yes, to change India, India is right now a very mediocre nation. Unfortunately, it is a very mediocre nation with a people who have a great amount of greatness in them. So 1.3 billion people, they all have greatness in them, but they are not aware of it. 
they are all the descendants of ancient kings and queens and emperors and empresses but they are not aware of it they think we are all mediocre and sab chalta hai and all that nonsense indians today have very low standards let me explain why we have very low standards indians tolerate leaders who fail and indian leaders tolerate subordinates who fail this is called low standards indians worship little people as heroes right so this is the kind of nation india is today it will take some great individual to change the nation a great figure so yes somebody of the caliber of chanakya i would not talk about hitler hitler was a monster but somebody of the caliber of vishnu gupta chanakya and 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 someone of, of the caliber of chandragupta maurya or raj raj chola rajendra chola shivaji maharaj or or kanishka the great someone of that level because india is such a large nation india needs an enormous a person of enormous stature and personality and force of will to unify the country together in the past people ask why did the marathas not fight with the sikhs and why did the sikhs not fight with the marathas and why were the british able to recruit so many indians to fight for them against other indians it's because indians have no sense of unity indians have no sense of nationality and that's the problem so it will take somebody with that force of character and personality to bring india together and make everybody see that we are all the same people you may speak bengali you may speak tamil you may speak marathi you may speak kashmiri it doesn't matter you are the same people when someone can do that that's when you india will unify and become a superpower until then we are a nation of mediocre people with very low standards that's how it's going to go all right Vikram Samvat, I have uh, answered that question. Rudra says, in maths, physics, chemistry, why do we only use Greek symbols? Even the COVID variants are known uh, are named after Greek alphabets. Oh, my cron! And what's special in the Greek language? Nothing special about the Greek language. The world is Eurocentric today. The people who run the world. and decide these names are all eurocentric western oriented people and the past 2 300 years it's we have had a tradition tradition globally to suppress the east to suppress the eastern world and to promote the greatness of the white of the white race race and the in the european world so it's all eurocentrism if you look at uh If you look at the names of the species in biology, the animal species, it's all once again Latin and Greek. When it comes to botany, classification of botanic uh, botanical species, it's all Latin and to some extent Greek. Uh, the father of the periodic table, Mendeleev, who was Russian, had named the chemical elements after uh, with with Sanskrit prefixes, aka dwi, tri, that way, but. his work when it was continued they discarded his nomenclature and in, uh, and uh, inserted latin or greek uh, uh, prefixes and, and names you know so that's what they did so dimitri mendeleev was how did he get the inspiration for the periodic table by studying the work of the great panini the great linguist panini and he saw that there is so much symmetry and order and pattern in the in patterns in the way this guy panini had classified and organized the grammar of the sanskrit language it was e- extraordinary the way it was done and none of us in india know this because we don't study it right so dimitri mendeleev was incredibly profoundly impressed with that he was and and it made a huge impression on him and that's when he was uh 
He was inspired to look at similar patterns in the chemical elements. And that's how we came up with the periodic table, which is the foundation of chemistry, etc. science today. So he used Sanskrit prefixes. The West discarded it. He said, this stupid Russian has, in, has done this good work, but let's discard the nomenclature that he used. So there is nothing special about the Greek uh, alphabet or the language, nothing whatsoever. If we had any sense of pride, any sense of uh, being different, in any sense of being a civilization, we would teach science, chemistry, etc. in our own languages with Sanskrit prefixes and all that. But we don't do it because we are a nation that is completely colonized, totally from top to bottom colonized. Okay. Yeah, no. Okay, let's see. Okay, many questions I get about the law of attraction. Uh, I'm a practitioner of the law of attraction. I want to know what are your thoughts about it and what do our ancient scriptures say about this? Listen, I haven't studied the law of attraction. It's not a scientific law. It is. Uh, I think it is something to do with spirituality or, or self-improvement. You keep on focusing on good things and you keep on... Um, you have a goal and you keep thinking about it like five times a day or 20 times a day or, or whatever, whatever. Then it, it, you attract it towards yourself when it comes to you. Listen, uh, there is no scientific evidence for this. But yes, if you if you program your mind to think about a certain goal and you actually take actions in the direction, then you may reach there. Certainly, there is a higher probability that you will actually succeed. So that way it will work. It won't work for everybody. Some people don't have the willpower to achieve big objectives. Some people don't have the aptitude, the, the ability. And so it won't work for such people. Some people who have that and who have the willpower, discipline to discipline themselves, it will work for them. So it's not a scientific principle. It's not a scientific law. I think it is a book by Rhonda Byrne. I think it's called The Secret in which the law of attraction was propounded, I think. And similar uh, principles or similar ideas have been around for a long time. I haven't studied these, so I cannot tell you in detail whether it works or not. What do our ancient scriptures say about it? Uh, I, I'm not quite sure if, if if India's scriptures speak about the law of attraction or any such principle. India's scriptures are not that shallow. They are really, really profound. And it takes a lifetime to, to even study a small fraction of them. So, so that's what I can say about this. I get a lot of this. I mean, I get this question asked a lot. So I thought I'll answer it. Okay, Rudra says... Do you, how do you understand geopolitics that much? By reading books about this topic or just by observation and reading history and figuring it out yourself? Please guide us under geopolitics. Uh, how do I understand geopolitics? Listen, uh, since I was a kid, I've been reading about not only history, but I've been keeping in... Uh, keep staying on top of current affairs. I've been looking at what happens. I was interested in the Second World War, the Cold War. I could see connections between these two events. So it's not just history. It's something that's actually happening. And the present is uh, shaped by the past. And therefore, if you study world history in great detail, then you will have an inherent, innate understanding of why things are the way they are and what the forces that shape the world, the military forces, the economic forces, the political forces, uh, how do empires rise and fall? How do kingdoms uh, become, how do, how do kingdoms and cultures disintegrate? If you understand all that, you will naturally understand geopolitics. So to understand geopolitics, you have to first understand history and not history of a small little place like this. 
but the overall global history. So it takes time to develop that ability. And it's not like I read a few books. I read lots and lots of books, not entire books, only the parts I found interesting. And I read lots of journal articles, lots of research papers, and lots of overall media content. I am just a curious person. I read whatever I find interesting. And nowadays, I even listen and I watch things from time to time. So that's how it is. So how do you understand geopolitics? You will never, ever understand geopolitics unless you understand world history. You need to have a good understanding of at least the past 500 years of world history, not in very, very excruciating detail, but big picture. If you understand big picture, world history, then you will get a very good sense of geopolitics and how it works. And not just what happened, what did it happen, but why things happen why things happen, what are the hidden patterns that underlie world history. And the same patterns are at play today. You see, that's how it goes. So it's all about understanding world history and understanding the hidden patterns that shape world history. So that's what I can say. Okay. Um, Prabal says, how should, what should India do to progress in other sports like football and how to rem remove this cricket-centric mentality, all it takes is investment. This sort of investment you have in the IPL, if you make the same sort of inv investment in, say, football, you're going to have a world-class league. You're going to have a bunch of teams which will, which will necessarily want to attract good Indian talent. And then the hidden Indian footballers who are in some village or some town and who don't have any opportunity, they will all be scouted, picked up and and elevate it to the global level. It's all about investment. If you invest the same amount of money in Kabaddi, just imagine what will happen. It's a sport that all Indians love, actually. we get if You watch it, it's so interesting, it's so exciting. It's a contact sport like rugby, right? You need big, hefty people to do that. Guys, girls, whatever, right? So it's all about investment. Right now, for cricket is this big thing, but you could start a, a, a league for Kabaddi. I would pay to watch a, a good Kabaddi match. I would love it. I like sports with a little bit of contact, a little bit of a little bit of aggression. I have no issue with that, and I am sure Indians also love it. I mean, it's it's a, a sport that came out of India thousands of years ago. So Kabaddi, I would like to see being uh, promoted that way. I think there are a couple of small leagues of Kabaddi here and there, and they show it on various sports channels. But I would like to see a year-long league, or at least eight, nine months long league, leave, league with a few months in gray, of break to recuperate and all that. It would be so fascinating to see that. India has so much potential. Imagine if India becomes good in sport with, with, because of investments. It's all about investments. In, I would love to see a hockey league. We had a hockey league. We may still have one. But it's, it's moribund. Nothing is happening. Invest some good money in a hockey league. India will become a hockey superpower all over again. Right? It's fun. Sports are great to watch. Spend half an hour, one hour of your of your day once once or twice a week in watching sports. It's great. And it's even great to play sports because it develops you physically and mentally as well. It's good for personal development, for personal growth. I would like to see a mixed martial arts league in India. It is all about investment. We need entrepreneurs who invest in this. Look at Dana White of the UFC. He started from, from scratch. He started from zero. He had nothing. And he built the UFC into what it is today. It's a global behemoth. So if we need Indian entrepreneurs, we need Indian businessmen, businesswomen to invest in sports, start up 
this is all startups start up a new league of some sport and let's see how it goes if you do your work well if you are good at business you're going to make it succeed but indian what i see is that the the environment isn't there in india for risk taking people india is still a very poor nation per capita gdp is abysmal so people are very very afraid of taking risks you make you make of taking risk if you make a mistake in business you lose your investment you lose your money you, you lose your business then it's almost impossible to start over again in the us it's not that way you can fail at multiple businesses and then you can succeed eventually because there is so much um, angel investment and all that in india that is not there if you're in some small village in 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 bihar let's say and you have a brilliant idea how are you going to get the funds for that so that is the problem in india right now but what needs to happen overall for for progress in other sports is just investments we need to put money into that because it's going to create an entire ecosystem in which there'll be so many jobs that are created you know coaching jobs uh, various uh, support staff jobs medical uh, sports medicine jobs coaching jobs uh, stadium maintenance jobs and an entire media industry can be created around this it's it's in untapped gold mine sports is an is an untapped gold mine and you know what today you want to you want to take a break you have to go and switch on some tv channel and watch cricket that's the only option you have what if you have seven other, other sports that you, that you can watch it will give people more options in life in india there are no options that's the problem so that is what needs to happen i would love to see it happen when i was a kid i used to think why don't we have these things why don't we have a rugby league i used to think when i was a kid because but of course rugby is not really relevant to india when i was a kid i used to think why don't we have a rugby league like like they have in other countries why don't we have a football league why don't we have a cricket league okay so now we have a cricket league but we are completely neglecting other sports because we are still colonized this colonial mindset play cricket so i would like to see other sports take off it will be great fun if that happens great great fun Okay. Tejas says, "What is the origin of the people of Nuristan? Why was this region called Kafiristan before? If they are Hindus, why do they look European? Listen, what is Hindu? It's not blood. It's culture. Why do they look European? Well, for we have to look into their history. If you take to check the genetics of these people of of uh, Chitral, the Kalash people, I have a video on that. You will find that they have Indian origin DNA." they look whatever because they may be living high up in the mountains so the skin becomes fair look at me i am also reasonably fair i don't live in the mountains it's all genetics but we are all the same people below the superficial aspects that you see here right it doesn't matter what you look like white black brown red eyes i mean red hair blue blue eyes doesn't matter it doesn't matter inside we all have the same dna if you check the people of uh, this region the kalash people you will find that their patrilineal lineages are entirely indian and their matrilineal lineages are more west eurasian that's a weird mixture but from the from the patrilineal side they clearly have unmistakable undeniable indian dna right some people say they are descendants of greeks that's why they have blonde hair and blue eyes hey look at the greeks today do they have blonde hair and blue eyes no the average greek man or woman will have dark hair and brown eyes and reasonably brown skin not white skin they don't look like proper europeans so this entire thing that they are descendants of alexander's soldiers is utter nonsense right so these are the kalash people they practice a very old form of what we call hinduism it is it looks like a rigvedic form of hinduism right that's what they practice but it's it's dying out so in this region called which is now known, known as nuristan it was called kafiristan in afghanistan before so 
I think in the 19th century, etc., these were people were still Hindus. In in see, so there are two two regions. One is this Kafiristan in Afghanistan or Nuristan, it's called now. And then there is this region called Chitral. These are essentially adjacent regions, same same overall geographical uh, vicinity. So uh, the Chitral region in Pakistan, these people are still uh, somehow continuing the, the old tradition of ancient Hinduism. In Afghanistan, they've all been converted to Islam. So in the 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, somewhere there, uh, these people were all massacred. Whoever survived was converted by force to, to Islam by the Afghans. And that's how Afghanistan is now entirely an Islamic country, 99.9%. So the people of Kafiristan, let's, let's take a look where it is, Kafiristan, Nuristan. Uh, let me share the screen. So we are now in the, the subcontinent. Let's go to Afghanistan and let's look at Nuristan. Nuristan, Afghanistan. Okay, so this region, which you can see here, is uh, Nuristan, so-called Nuristan in Afghanistan. And uh, and the, the, the region near it is Swat, Chitral, etc. So it's all adjacent regions, right? So that is where these people lived, these people uh, who practiced this ancient, who had held on to their ancestral practices. So the Afghans massacred lots of them forcibly converted all of the rest to Islam. So the place which was originally called Kafiristan was then called Nuristan, the land of light, because Islam is here now. So that's what happened. That is what happened in brief. They were all converted by force. And then they said, this is the land of light now because Islam is here and Hinduism is gone. So that's what happened. And uh, why did they, they look European? Because of their mixed uh, genetic status. Patrilineal lineages are Indian. Matrilineal lineages are weirdly West European. Okay, Brahmagupta discovered the concept of gravity before Newton. Then why is Newton credited for discovering gravity? Is it possible for that the concept of gravity traveled to Europe from India? See, yes, the concept of gravity did originate in India, undeniable. Yes, what did Newton do? He discovered the inverse square law of gravitation. So that is something that wasn't there in India. All right. So he added something on top of it. Did he come up with the idea of, of gravity on his own? Was he inspired by India? We don't know. What we know was that there was transmission of the uh, knowledge of calculus from India to Europe via Jesuit missionaries who stole these ideas from India. And uh, then we find that calculus is suddenly discovered by two independent uh, European scientists, one in England, Newton, and one in Germany, Leibniz, in the same year. Such a monumental discovery happens independently in two places in the same year, which it has, which has never happened in thousands of years before that. So it's it's ridiculous. It's obviously they both got, got hold of some translations by the Jesuit priests, and that's why they both tried to claim that it was their discovery. So today, Newton is credited, credited with the discovery of calculus, which is false. It is now known that it was already discovered a few centuries ago in India, maybe even before that. Now, gravity, again, uh, we don't know if the knowledge of gravity also tra traveled to the West with these Jesuit priests. But Newton came up with something original, the inverse square law of gravity, which we aren't aware if any Indians had ever discovered that. So it's 
an addition on top of it. So the foundation of the building was clearly built by Indians. And he, you can say that Newton built the first floor on top of the foundation. Without the foundation, the first floor would never have happened. So that is what it is. Okay. Why does the Irula tribe from South India way look different from North Indians? Look be below the surface, check their DNA and see and see what it what you see. Okay, let's see Irula tribe DNA. Let's let's do a real-time search. Uh, one second, not this. Okay, let's just look here. Irula tribe DNA. What is the Irula tribe's DNA? Let's see if they have R1A. Okay, let's search for Irula. I R U L A. Irula. Okay, this. Uh, so, yeah, okay. So, I will have this will take some time to research properly. So, let me not uh, take away your time in that. The thing is this that Indians look very different depending on what region they are in. Right? You go to Afghanistan. I'm talking about the Indian subcontinent. You look go to Afghanistan, they look way different from somebody in Kerala or Andhra Pradesh or Tamil Nadu or Telangana or Sri Lanka. Right? You go to Balochistan, they look very different from the people of Bengal, Assam, etc. Right? But if you go below the superficial features and the color of the skin and the color of the eyes and hair, you go and check their DNA, you will find that all Indians have Indian origin DNA. Whether it is R1A or any other haplogroup, patrilineal or matrilineal. We know that the haplogroup F, is, which is an Indian origin haplogroup, is the ancestral haplogroup of more than 90% of non-African males. And similarly, the haplogroups M and N, which are matrilineal haplogroups, are the ancestral haplogroups of more than 90% of non-African women. These are also Indian origin haplogroups. So people look different. It doesn't matter what you look like. You're all Indians. You are all Indians. You're all Indians. You're all Indians. And you are all related to each other. How many times do I have to say this? I will keep on saying it. And I know I'm going to keep getting these questions. It's fine. It's fine. I'm, I have no issue with that. I heard that Greeks ruled Sabrashtra region, Gujarat. Shed light on that. Look, they were Indo-Greeks. Okay, I have already, I have a video about the Indo-Greeks and uh, what it was all about. So after the failed invasion by Alexander, you had a different, you had a subsequent in invasion by his general Seleucus Nicator, which ended up as an Indo-Greek alliance. He entered into a political and familial alliance with our emperor Chandragupta Maurya. Chandragupta Maurya accepted Seleucus Nicator's daughter as his wife. They became relatives. And then Seleucus Nicator went westwards and continued his campaigns and became a very big, became the ruler of a very big empire to the west of India. Later on, his generals, etc., they established small little kingdoms in India's west, in India's northwest, called the Indo-Greek kingdoms. These, in, these Greeks, they adopted Indian culture, Indian lifestyle, they all convert, 
well, conversion is not the right word. We have no conversion to dharma, but they all adopted dharmic lifestyles. Some of them became uh, experts in the Vedas. Some of them became expert in Buddhism. For instance, uh, in the Buddhist uh, precepts, for instance, we have King Milind, who was an expert in the Buddhist precepts and also in the Vedas. King Milind, Menander, they call him. That was in the northwest of India. And similarly, it is said that one some for some small period of time, some Indo-Greek kings may have ruled in Western India, Saurashtra, Gujarat, you know, and these are all not fully Greek because they married Indian uh, ladies. They all had Indian wives, so their children, descendants were all half Indian or one more than half Indian and half Greek. So most of them eventually were just known as Yavanas or, or Ionians, Greeks, but they all had Indian blood and Indian culture. So yes, it is a uh, uh, it is believed, I think it is recorded, that there was a small period of time when Saurashtra was ruled by, uh, was part of the Indo-Greek uh, kingdoms. I think Junagadh was known as Yavanagadh for some time because it was uh, a city ruled by the Greeks. So yes, there is a short period of history in which Saurashtra was ruled by the Greeks. And later on, it was uh, the Greek Indo-Greek era was over. And then you had the Scythian era, which began again, Indo-Scythians. Scythians are the same as Indians. There is no real difference, and so on and so forth. So that is your answer, sir. In very brief, you can certainly look uh, in more detail and read up about this matter. Ritesh says, "What is a nebula? Is it the, is it the birth or the death of stars? Crab Nebula was caused by a supernova explosion." In 1100 AD, a nebula is a big cloud of gas. How does a nebula form? Let's let's take a look at nebulas, shall we? Let me show you what this is about. Okay, let's take a look at Crab Nebula and go to images. So this is what the Crab Nebula looks like. Yeah, it was uh, it was visible as a supernova about like you say, around 1100 AD or thereabouts, somewhere there. So this, what you see here, is an enormous cloud of gas, various kinds of gases. And uh, the blue light, I think, comes from oxygen or nitrogen. And the different colors from come from the ionization of different gases. So the bluish, greenish light is most likely nitrogen and oxygen. If I am not mistaken, I don't remember exactly, but that, that sort of thing. And if you see the same thing in different wavelengths, it looks different. All right, so this may be infrared or something, and so on. So, so what is a nebula? It's a big cloud of gas. Now, the question is, how is a nebula formed? Typically, a nebula is formed from the death throes of star from a supernova explosion. Sometimes you don't even need a supernova. For instance, if you have a smallish star, let's say the sun. The sun is not a big star. It's, it's classified as a yellow dwarf star. When the sun reaches its old age, its senescence, it's not going to die in a supernova. It's going to die quietly. Quietly. No explosion, no supernova. It's going to shed. It's going to become a red dwarf. It's going to shed its outer layers. And eventually the outer layers will just dissipate in an, in an ever-increasing, uh, in, in a shell of ever increasing radius and that will eventually become a big nebula, a big cloud of gas and what will be left at the core at where the sun is, it's going to be a, a white dwarf most likely. So that is one way of forming a nebula when a star just qui quietly, quietly dissipates away and then you have a big mostly spherical nebula and at the center you have a white dwarf 
or something that's left behind eventually the shape will will change from a sphere after many millions of years the other way of forming a nebula is an explosion a, a stellar explosion a supernova explosion in which a larger star a star that's larger than the sun dies by exploding boom that's how it goes so in that case you will have a nebula that's formed by an explosion in that case also you will have a spherical structure but then eventually the structure changes depending on the ambient environment so the crab nebula was caused by a supernova the supernova was visible on earth it was almost as bright as the full moon or something in the in the in the daytime it was visible so that's how it is and nebulas eventually also give birth to new stars when the same gas etc combines with other things and and recombines into a star it can give birth to a new star as well so that is just the life cycle of stars so i hope that explains what a nebula is okay let's take some more questions what do we have Uh-huh. Let us see. Okay, Harsh says, why don't we have drawings or formula written in our ancient texts? Why did they only use words and verses to describe all things? Is it because of their higher intelligence? So if you look at the Vedas, the Puranas, these are not scientific texts. Right. So there you will not find anything mathematical or, or such. In the case of actual mathematical and scientific texts, you find that Indians uh, did not use formula. They encoded these formulas in, in, in Sanskrit. So I don't remember what exactly it is called. Uh, it is a way of encoding formulae in, in, uh, in syllables and all that. So it was the Indian way of doing things. Maybe it was more convoluted or whatever, but it was very accurate. So you could actually de decrypt, let's see, uh, a poem. It looks like a poem. It has verses in a certain meter. And each syllable is a component of a formula. So that's how it was done. That was the way of doing things. Uh, so it was a little more difficult. You needed a certain level of intelligence to even get initiated into that. So maybe it was a way of gatekeeping that any uh, any Tom, Dick and Harry cannot go and do that. In, in The gatekeeping was only for the level of intelligence, right? So if you are a bright enough student, you will be able to understand this and then you will be able to use those uh, formula, etc. in actual scientific work. And that's how Indians uh, understood the entire universe, right? Indians uh, knew this. Uh, I think Indians knew, knew the speed of light. In the, I think it's... Uh, it's uh, it has been calculated during the Puranic era, I think, the speed of light, a very reasonably accurate uh, calculation of the speed of light. The value of pi was known for a very long time. The exact length of the year, right, of the year, the, the periods of the various planets, everything was calculated on the basis of laws that were encoded, of, of physical laws that were encoded in mathematical formulas that were encoded in the syllables of Sanskrit in various uh, texts. So that's just how it was done. May, is it higher intelligence? It certainly requires a huge amount of intelligence to be able to do that. Uh, it was it it made it hard for the layperson to access it. But maybe the layperson doesn't need to access these things. Today we are taught all kinds of nonsense which we don't need in school. I mean, does anybody use trigonometry in their real life ever? Does anyone use calculus in the real life ever? But you're forced to study that. 
you don't need to study it. Only scientists need to know trigonometry and calculus and algebra even, even algebra and geometry. You can learn basic low-level uh, algebra and geometry, which is not bad. I mean, you may use it someday in life. But the average person never needs to use that, but we are still forced to use to, to learn all that. And it is a big traumatic experience for most kids, isn't it? I loved it personally, but I understand how it goes. Most people, they, they, they're traumatized by this experience. So the thing is, in India, it was different. Everybody did not have to learn this. Nobody was forced to learn it. Only those who were so inclined had to demonstrate a level of intelligence where they could do this. And then they were able to learn these things. Okay, uh, the question is, you say that out of Africa migration uh, theory is the best that we know of today, yes. Then my question is, how did these people from Africa inhabit landmass far away, far beyond, such as Australia, North America, etc.? It's called migrations. It's called migrations. They migrated. There have been lots and lots and lots of waves of migrations of human beings from one place to another. Even before the out of Africa migration happened, the Homo sapiens migration, our ancestors' migration out of Africa happened. There were, before that also, there were many migrations out of Africa. You had the Neanderthals, our, our close cousins, who had who were living in Eurasia long before us, long before our migration happened. You had the so-called Denisovan people, whose migration also happened long before ours. They also lived, I, I think it happened before ours, but they also lived in, in Eurasia. Uh, you know that the, the you have uh, these fossils from Indonesia, from Java, of hominid species that came way before us, right? And it looks like there may be evidence of human presence in Southern America that date back more than 100,000 years, maybe 130,000 years. So if that is proven to be true, then it indicates there was a migration out of Africa even to South America before the uh, Homo sapiens migration happened 75,000 or so years ago. So how do people migrate? They take enormous risks. Why do they take risks? I don't know. The story is lost in time. How did people reach Australia? They went by sea. They, they undertook a very difficult sea voyage. I mean, we know that 4,000 years ago, there, there was the introduction of Indian genetics in the Australian Aboriginal population. How did these Indians from the Saraswati Sindhu time reach Australia? Right? So they undertook a very long, difficult and arduous journey. Humans take risks. Why do they take risks? The story has been lost in time. So typically you would take a long, long, long journey across land. You would take a long journey across sea on some kind of boat or raft or something, which is able to survive the long voyage. You may get stranded somewhere and you may set up population there, like in Sentinel Islands and the Andaman Islands. We have the natives there who have been stranded there for like 30,000, 40,000 years, right? And then you have the population of Australia, which is about 50,000, 60,000 years old, isolated population. They also reached there somehow 50,000, 60,000 years ago. They must have undertaken a sea voyage. Why did they do it? We don't know, but that's just how it is. And similarly, uh, they say that uh, in North, the population of, of the Americas, North and South Americas, it is said, see, let me show you the map and we will go there. Okay, let's go back to maps. Okay, let's zoom out. So if you look at the people, the native 
true indigenous people of the Americas, they look more like the people of Siberia and Mongolia, don't they? If you look at their uh, superficial facial, facial features. And genetically also they have been proven to be closer uh, and related to the people of Siberia and, and uh, Mongolia, etc. So if you look here, you have the, the two landmasses are very close by, right? It's not really far, far, far away. And again, you have this so-called, what looks like a bridge here. So in the past, during the ice ages, all of this was frozen over and you could just walk. You could just take a walk if you had the endurance and stamina from the Eurasian landmass to the North American landmass. So it is believed, the uh, mainstream theory says that there were no human beings in the Americas until about 13, 14,000 years before today. Before that, there were no humans. That's what they claim. And these humans, they migrated from Eastern Asia across the frozen uh, seas into North America. And from North America, slowly, 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 they made their way downwards, southwards. And eventually, they populated even the southern parts of America. That is the claim that is made. I think it's a very shallow claim. I think there must have been human habitation in the Americas much before that. And I think the evidence is slowly emerging. So it's all about migrations. It's all about migrations. Humans are a migratory species. We just migrate, migrate, migrate. That's what we do. We don't st stay in one place for too long. In one human lifetime, you may stay where you are. But when we take a bigger lens, see, when we see history from a very, very narrow lens, we get a very narrow understanding of history. If you take a slightly broader lens, Instead of seeing the last 50 years, see the last 300 years, you will get a better, a better understanding. Then if you see the last 2000 years, you get a better understanding of humanity and the human history. If you take the last 100,000 years, you get a big picture understanding of the patterns of, of human history and migration. So if you look at, if you take the big picture view, you find that the history of the human species is a history of migrations. Humans migrate continuously from one place to another, always in search of better places to live, better conditions, climate changes, things changes, ice ages happen, then you have to go somewhere else. Then a warm age happens, the sea levels rise, then you have to go somewhere else. This happens over thousands of years. Even in India, we have migrations. The Saraswati River dried out, people moved away from there and, and went elsewhere. It is known, it is recorded. But this happened over thousands, over hundreds of years or, or, or over a period of 1500 years. It did not happen in one week. So that is the answer. Okay, let us see some other questions. Uh, Mahendra says there are some concerns over Chinese electronic parts in the S-400 uh, uh, system that would allow China to disable the system whenever they want. Well, could transfer of technology or buying American systems be a better choice? Uh, so I am not aware of whether the, there are Chinese components in this S-400 system. I do not think the Russians would ever want Chinese components in something that is essential to their defense because China is a big geopolitical rival for them. So I am not sure if it is so, then it is surprising, I would say. I thus far have never heard of any Chinese components, Chinese electronic parts in this system. I think the Russians would never want to, would never allow that. Okay, so that's point number one. 
transfer of technology the, the russians will never transfer this technology to any country even to the closest allies this is a technology that sets them apart they will sell the system to you they will teach you how to use it they will give you spare parts when required they will give you supplies of new missiles when required but they will not transfer the technology of how they have built the system come on would you if india had developed a world class system missile defense system would it ever transfer the technology to somebody else no matter how much money they offered no so we want to do that and the russians will not transfer the technology now if you buy uh, buy american systems will it be a better choice first of all the american systems aren't as good as the s400 they have the aegis missile defense system the the uh, yeah the aegis system i, I think it's called the patriot uh, the evo- evolution of the patriot missiles but that's not as good as the russian s400 system the s400 system is a multi layered missile system multi layered defense system it's got like two or three comp- at least three components long range component medium range component short range component so for three different scenarios so it can take care of all that it's a, it's a brilliant system the best in its class and now they are even developing the s500 and the s550 i think so i think the american system will certainly not be better than the russian system and secondly the american system will also have american electronic parts which means they can disable it whenever they want it means the americans can also disable it whenever they want it's called a kill switch a kill switch the australians are users of american technology american uh, military technology i think they had some uh, one of the american fighter planes f16 is it F15A I'm not sure one of these fighter planes and they found that the, when they were using these fighter planes it did not allow them to fire at any any particular any specific any selected target it would allow them to fire only on specific targets and the other capabilities were locked off from them which means the americans gave them a weapon system which was not fully functional it could fly do everything but it would not fire on targets the americans did not want to be fired at and then the australians had to spend several years to rewrite the entire software package that would finally allow them to unlock the full capabilities of the of the of the uh, fighter aircraft so even american systems are like that right they want they they can they can switch off certain uh capabilities when they wish remotely so that's just how it is when you buy arms from a foreign power there are always going to be these problems and that's why i keep saying we need to become self sufficient in weapons technology in the military domain we need to in the next 10 20 years ensure that everything is built in house so that we can have the full use of all our assets how do scientists determine the event horizon is the point from which even light cannot escape it's very simple the calculations that come out of general relativity the event horizon uh, its radius is 2 mg by c squared for a non rotating black hole for a rotating black hole there's a different calculation but for the standard non rotating black hole with, with only mass and no uh, and no charge the radius of the event horizon is 2 mg by c squared 2 mg 2 mg m is the mass g is the gravitational constant and c is the speed of light 2 mg by c squared is the radius of the event horizon it's all theoretical we don't have a black hole that we can actually test we don't have a black hole in a lab, lab sitting somewhere right 
So it is all theoretical. We have observed objects that look like black holes, that behave like black holes. But hey, it could be something very similar to a black hole, very close to it, but something different. It is very possible. So it's all theoretical thus far, unless and until we actually have a black hole in a lab or somewhere nearby that we can observe, or unless we can actually send a probe to an actual existing black hole, then we'll be able to actually corroborate what the theory says. So the event horizon right now is not something that is observed and measured. It is something that our theory tells us should exist. So that is the boundary of uh, that is the boundary of no return. The 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 line of no return. Beyond that, light cannot escape from a black hole if you go closer to the black hole than that. So that's a theoretical calculation. Sunaina says, is there any other source of oxygen other than plants and trees on Earth? The biggest source of oxygen is uh, is Phyto, photoplankton, phytoplankton. It is it is these uh, microorganisms in the sea, in the ocean. Is it called photoplankton? Is it called phytoplankton? Let me see. What is it called? It is called phytoplankton. These are microscopic algae. So when you have a pond and it turns green, right? Or you have a lake and it turns green, it is these small microscopic organisms called algae. Algae can be bigger as well. They can be macroscopic as well. But in the oceans, you have phytoplankton, which are microscopic algae that undergo photosynthesis for their energy source. And they release oxygen. And I think they are responsible for, I believe, more than half of the oxygen that is released into the atmosphere. So that is why the oceans are essential to our survival if we kill the oceans we're going to kill the phytoplankton and then we're going to have a big oxygen catastrophe so it's not just the trees and the plants on the earth it is the oceans and their phytoplankton that is really vital to the survival of our planet overall and the kind of ecosystem we have today if the ocean becomes anoxic if it becomes deficient in oxygen, which, can, which, which has happened in the past, then there is going to be an extinction level event. And it's going to be big, big, big trouble for us. So that is, the actually, that is actually the real major source of oxygen, the phytoplankton in the oceans. Okay, Karan says, what is Hindutva and Hinduism? Is there any difference? Are they, the, are they the creation of anti-Hindus? What is a Vyakti? It is an individual, a person. What is it to be a Vyakti? What is it to be a human being? It is Vyaktitva. What is a Hindu? It's a person who practices Hinduism. What is it to be a Hindu? It is Hindutva. There is no difference. See, this term Hindutva is now demonized in order to, to, to bash Hinduism. So, as of today in the academic world in the media it is it is still wrong it is still taboo to openly outrightly uh, demonize a religion so like they can't do it to islam till now they cannot do it to hinduism that's why they are cre creating new category or new code words for hinduism which they can openly bash so they say there is something called brahminism and they say it's different from hinduism it is the brahminical element of hinduism and they bash brahminism right they demonize brahminism Brahminism, what is, there is no Brahminism. It's a new term they've created for, for just for the purpose of, of demonizing Hinduism. Similarly, Hindutva is 
a proxy they use to demonize Hinduism. It is again a, a term that has been coined relatively recently, right? Hindu itself is a is a foreign term. It's an exonym. Indians never called themselves Hindus. It is the Persians who first called Indians Hindus, and then the Arabs, Turks, etc., started, started calling Indians Hindus. Now it has become the term only for the uh, Indians who practice Indian culture. The other Indians who don't practice Indian culture are no longer called Hindus. They are called whatever other religion they are. So, Hindutva means being a Hindu. If you are a Hindu, you have Hindutva in you. That's it. There is, it's not a separate form of Hinduism or anything. Some people define it as Hinduism that resists, that stands up for itself. That could be a new way of looking at it because most Hindus are passive and they just accept whatever happens to them. You, you burn their books, you destroy their temples, you enslave their temples, you steal the property and the money of the temples. Hindus will just sit and watch. Docile, like sheep. And some Hindus, they speak about it, they protest, and those are the Hindus who resist. So those are possibly termed term the Hindus who practice Hindutva, which means active Hinduism, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, these are all, it is all semantics, it's all terminology. But the term Hindutva is demonized by anti-Hindus for the sake of demonizing Hinduism. Similarly, Brahminism is a new term they have created. There is no such thing as Brahminism. But today, everybody uses this term Brahminism, Brahminism in academia, in the media, uh, everywhere. They will call certain temples as Brahminical temples. What the hell is Brahminical temples? These are Indian temples. Everybody went there. So that is all done to create more divisions in Indian society, in Hindu society, to break one part, one component of Hindus from another and then and create more resentment among certain Hindus and so on. To the eventual end goal is to wipe Hinduism out of the country, whatever little is left of Hinduism. So that's what it is. All right, where do we go? How to unite Hindus? Leadership. Leadership, leadership, leadership. We need the right leaders. I'm not saying we have wrong leaders. I'm not saying we have wrong leaders. We need great leaders. Do Rajputs and Pashtuns have the same ancestry where Rajputs were one of the Mlechas, just like the Indo-Iranian steppe population? Rajputs were not Mlechas. See, this entire thing of... Uh, okay, it's First of all, it's a good question. I'm making a different point, which will come back to this question. All right. So the, this right now I see this big fight happening among Hindus, among Indians, not, in, not Hindus, among Indians. Who are the Rajputs? Who are the Gurjas? Which... Who can be classified as Rajputs? Who can be classified as Gurjas? Who is higher? Are Rajputs higher? Are Gurjas higher? All this nonsense. Listen, we are the same people. This is all pointless. It's a waste of time. You're spending all your energy, all your efforts in fighting each other. When you should be unifying because you all have the same blood, the same ancestry. It doesn't matter who is classified under Rajput, who is classified under Gurjar, who is classified under Jat. It doesn't matter. It simply doesn't matter. When people try to distort your history and portray your, your, your history as bad, then you can fight back against them. But stop fighting among each other. This petty nonsense is characteristic of India. India's entire vital energy is spent fighting each other. So I, I'm just tired of that. Please stop doing that. Those of you who are Rajputs and Gurjars or, or you're confused about it, it doesn't matter. I don't care. I'm not going to answer questions about Rajputs and Gurjars, right? Now, where Rajputs, Mlechas, 
no rajputs were not mlechas clearly they were part of the indian society indian civilization they served indian civilization they defended it and they practiced uh, they were they were very they had this big uh, they they were very concerned with being virtuous <laughs> being noble so no they were not mlechas they were clearly not mlechas mlechas are people who have abandoned uh, vedic hindu practices or or abandoned some aspect of the vedic practices the rajputs were not that so they, they were not mlechas now rajputs and pashtuns see uh, if you look at the the history of gandhar if you look at the history of the city of kandahar let's say kandahar then the uh, Tur- one of the turkic or or uh, persian writers of history more than a thousand years ago had recorded this that kandahar was the city of the rajputs so it was the city of the rajputs right and now who lives there the pashtuns live there and who are the pashtuns they have the same blood as us i have demonstrated in, in a previous uh, answer a few episodes back with genetic evidence research papers that the pashtuns are the same as indians they have the same genetics right so what happened is that um northwestern india fell to the turks and whoever lived there was converted to to islam so the rajputs who lived there lost and those who survived were voluntarily or involuntarily converted to islam so the pashtuns are also a warlike people they are they were classified as a martial race i think by the british maybe not but they have this warlike tendency so they are clearly the descendants of those rajputs and the genetics as we know are the same so it is most likely that the pashtuns are the descendants of the rajputs who lived in the region of gandhar before the uh, turkic occupation and destruction of the region so yes pashtuns and indians have the same ancestry not only rajputs because rajputs are indians rajputs have the same ancestry as all other indians there may be some little bit half a percent here and there of some foreign ancestry which is not relevant at all indians have this great great fetish for looking for foreign ancestry for for, for everything i see so many jats who say nahi hum indians nahi hai we are this and we are that we are goths and we are masagate or whatever are baba the masagate were also indians so i am just uh, <laughs> there is this very big hang up for finding some kind of foreign ancestry everybody wants to find some foreign ancestry these foreigners also had indian ancestry if you go back 5000 years they also originated from from india so it doesn't matter what ancestry you have whether you are a rajput whether you are a pashtun whether you are a maratha whether you are a bengali whether you are a tamil it doesn't matter whether you are assamese whether you are kashmiri it doesn't matter you are all indians unite 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 wake up okay Where's my guitar nowadays? Oh well, it's 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 somewhere here. I hardly ever get to play the guitar anymore, so I've kind of lost touch with music. You know, it's something I really enjoyed. I really still enjoy it, but no time. Nim Nirmit says, as a six, how can a sixteen-year-old student who has very high ambitions of serving the country mold his career in the right proper way for the nation and the civilization? currently preparing for jee excellent excellent very good i hope you you succeed i wish you the best how do you how do you succeed for the how do you serve the country 
as a 16 year old you have to first develop yourself into a substantial human being only when you are a substantial human being will you be able to serve the country so right now focus on yourself i always say this spend the first 10 20 years of your life of your adult life spend the first 10 or 20 years of your adult life focusing on personal growth and development get good work experience not just work experience different industries if you can get a lot of experience acquire as many real world skills as you can and become as wealthy as you can it is important to become wealthy because that give the, that wealth will give you the freedom to make choices later in life so once you are 30 maybe 40 depending on how you have progressed then you can dedicate the rest of your life to serving the nation because by that time you understand how the world works you understand how the different industries work and you have the wealth to make the choices that can change the country so as a 16 year old study acquire skills beyond your scope of study you are preparing for iit je yeah that's a that is a challenging task that you have to prepare for the exam i don't see why you should not do well if you prepare properly and if you get the time acquire some skills beyond that also today see in the 21st century it's all about technology the people who will uh, succeed in life and the people who will shape the course of the world are the people the youngsters of today who are very comfortable with high technology and who are comfortable with learning newer technology as it very quickly emerges because now the new technology doesn't emerge every 20 years now new technology emerges every 6 months so become very comfortable with technology high technology and you can do it for free everything all the information all the all the knowledge is available online you just need to know where to look so acquire all the skills it is the kids of today who going to shape the world in the next 20 years right so be very positive focus on yourself focus on personal growth and become as comfortable and confident as possible with new emerging technology learn technology immerse yourself in it vr ai everything ml gaming anime whatever interests you do that learn that so that's what you can do okay let's take some other questions lots of lots, lots of questions let me pick some some question love your conversation with ishkaran watching from london we all indian first we are we are all indian first yes madam thank you thank you for the comment uh can you please throw some light on the concept of biocentrism how much water does this hold according to science i think i have the book by robert lanza biocentrism i haven't got around to reading it so i think it's a theory of consciousness that consciousness is present across the universe or something like that you know what uh let me read the book then get back to you uh i have my own views about consciousness that which, which may or may not be the same as this i have purchased the book it's lying somewhere in one of my book shelves i think i will read it up and then maybe i can answer the question but it's a interesting concept it's all about consciousness and the vedic view is that consciousness permeates the universe it's not just something that arises arises in in living beings maybe it concentrates itself in certain areas like a human brain or something but it's something that's 
present to some extent across the universe. So that, that is a Vedic view of consciousness. I'm not sure if Robert Lanza has the same view. I will have to see it, but a good question. And I, I will certainly at some point return to this question. Jim Rafi says, please make video on astrophysics. Love from Bangladesh. Love you back, sir. I am a big friend of everyone from Bangladesh. You are our people. We are the same people. So yes, I will make videos on astrophysics. And thank you for the comment. Thank you for watching. Appreciate it. Okay. Why are Indian aspirants still preparing for the UPSC IAS exam? Which is one of the toughest exams in the world when we know when we all know that they, <laughs> that they will all go ahead and do corruption. Uh, okay, good question. See, let's uh, take the corruption thing aside for just a minute. Why are Indian aspirants still preparing for the UPSC IAS exam? See, look at India today, big picture. India is a nation with a very low per capita GDP. It's it's officially a poor nation. People have very few opportunities. We still don't have the booming startup ecosystem that everybody will get a job whether no matter what is their level of education and ability, everybody will have a job. That still isn't there. Right? So job security is a very big problem. Now, Indian parents by nature are risk averse. They want you to keep your head down. Don't take any risks. Take the safest path. Path Become secure in life. Get a stable job. Get married. Have kids. And then repeat the process all over again. That is something that has come to us over the past 1000 years of foreign occupation. Just survive. Survive somehow. Survive. And I don't blame Indian parents for this. Now what is the safest path in the country? It's a government job. If you have a government job, you have a job for life. You will never be sacked no matter how badly you manage things. You will never be sacked. You have a job for life if, you're, if, if it's a government job or an academic job. Professors, teachers, lecturers, sweepers. No, I don't know sweepers, but yeah, most of them have jobs for life. Once you are in, you're in. Right? So IAS, UPSC, it is a job that is going to be a job for life. And after you retire, you will have a pension for life. That is the safest option in the world. That's why so many Indians want to get into this. And of course, so I think that explains why so many people want this. They want to get into the big bureaucratic machinery of India. And then they will be sitting there relaxing <laughs> for the rest of their life. Chai Pio. Right. Okay, I'm not saying all bureaucrats are like that, but the vast majority are like that. So... Um, and do they do corruption? Yes, of course, we know that. I mean, that's an undeniable fact. There is a great deal of corruption. Someone said that, uh, what is Vallabhbhai Patel? Who said that the bureaucracy is the steel frame of India? Well, the steel frame is rotten. Sorry. You know? So yes, there is a great deal of corruption. I hope that someday India will launch a war on corruption. Where is the war on corruption? If you want India to have better days, there needs to be a significant, concerted, and a real, real, war on corruption, not some fake things here and there. So corruption is a very big problem. It is one of the biggest things that's holding India back. Yeah. So yeah, that's all I can say. Okay. The full truth is veganism good. It's a personal choice. Uh, in the Indian worldview, 
in Indian civilization, in Indian dharma, uh, vegetarianism is regarded as the highest ideal. Yes, it is the it is regarded as the superior way of living. But we know that Indians have always some Indians, not all. I think the majority of Indians at any given point in time, before the invasions, before the foreign occupation, before that time, the majority of Indians would have practiced vegetarianism. There would always have been some Indians who were non-vegetarian, especially the so-called martial races, the people who had to go to war, who needed extra protein to bulk up physically. Uh, and even then, you know, you can get all the protein you require from vegetarian food. So I would say that vegetarianism, I'm not talking about veganism, I'm talking about vegetarianism. Vegetarianism is certainly a healthier lifestyle. It is certainly a better lifestyle. It is better for the environment, for the planet. So yes, it is good. Veganism takes it to an extreme in which there is no dairy products also. That's a personal thing. It's a personal choice. It is a new fad that has emerged in the West. We will not eat any animal product. I don't care about what they do. I do not take, I, I do not uh, regard the West as a valid, uh, as a place from which we need to take our influences. We succeeded in the past with our own methodology, with our own civilization, with our own culture. We just need to look back to the time when we were successful. What lifestyles did we have at the time? What and and then we can we can try to replicate that and in our personal day-to-day -day lifestyle, and that can help us uh, get better and get ahead in life. So typically Indians were vegetarian, not vegan, not vegan. So is veganism good? Well, it's a personal choice. There is no animal product involved in, in veganism. In vegetarianism, you can consume milk and you can consume things like uh, cottage cheese, paneer, right? Paneer, etc. So those things are allowed in vegetarianism. In veganism, you cut even that out, in which case you lose a significant source of protein. You can still gain protein from pulses, from legumes, etc. You can certainly be a completely vegan person and become a bodybuilder. No doubt about it. So it's a personal choice. But I would say that vegetarianism is a superior way of life, not just for yourself, for ourselves, but also for the planet. Okay, I have spoken many times about the multiverse. There is no evidence for it. Did Emperor Chandragupta Maurya was a Jain monk. See, Chandragupta Maurya, uh, in the end stage of his life, he adopted the Jain philosophy, the Jain way of living, and he uh, he abdicated. So before he he did that, he abdicated the throne in favor of his son, and his son became the emperor of India. And Chandragupta Maurya said, I am done with this life. He went down south in the southern part of India. I think it was in Karnataka. Over there, he started practicing Jain precepts. And he starved himself. He fasted himself to death. It's called Salekhana or something in, in the Jain practices. I am not an expert. I apologize if I have mispronounced it in any way whatsoever. But it is the... Uh, one of the ways in which uh, certain Jain people choose to leave the world, to fast themselves out of this physical existence. So typically it would take 40-50 days of starving, no eating, only water I suppose, I think, I'm not sure. 
So that is what Chandragupta Maurya did. He was done with his service of the nation. He went to the south of India. There he adopted Jain practices and he fasted himself until he was no longer present on this planet physically, consciously. Right? So that's what he did. So he did not live a Jain life. He was an orphan boy. Chandragupta Maurya was an orphan boy who was brought out of uh, obscurity and by the great Vishnugupta Chanakya. And he was uh, he was uh, uplifted or promoted, you could say, to the status of the emperor of all India, of the majority of, of most of the Indian subcontinent, most of it, right? So he did not live a Jain life. It's only after he abdicated from the throne, you could say he retired from his position as emperor. That's when he adopted Jain principles, Jain precepts, the Jain lifestyle. So once again, Jainism is not a separate religion. Today, everybody is so badly brainwashed. Hinduism is a separate thing. Sikhism is a separate thing. Jainism is a separate thing. Buddhism is a separate thing. These are all part of Dharma. There are different ways of living, different ways of looking at the world, but the core values are all the same. There is no difference. There are more similarities than differences. The differences will be 2 or 3%. The similarities are 99, 90, 98%, 99%, 97%, if I'm saying 3%. So stop looking at the small, minute differences. The similarities are what matter. You know what happens? <laughs> so I, I hope I've answered about Chandragupta Maurya. You know what happens? Let me Let me explain something bigger. See, when you go to school, what are you rewarded for? You, you, Your reward is the marks you get in an exam, right? You may have multiple exams during a year, term exams, and then you have the big final year exam. And what are you rewarded for? What are you punished for? Let's, let's take a look at that. In an exam, you may have studied the topic well. Let's say you're talk, talking about history. Let's say you are talking about uh, some chapter of history. When you write the essay in the exam about the to answer the question about whatever part of history is asked over there if you make the smallest mistake let's say instead of 1066 AD you say 1067 AD they will cut two marks if you uh, write the spelling of a name of a king slightly wrong instead of Chandragupta you will say Chandragupta then they will cut two marks again so because because of these extremely small, minute, minor, insignificant mistakes, you lose a lot of marks, right? So you are trained since your childhood to focus on the very small things. It doesn't matter if you have got the big picture, the real idea or not, but you only want to make sure that you don't get the small things wrong. And that happens from first standard, second standard, third standard, 10th standard, 12th standard, college, university onwards. Your entire childhood, you are trained to focus on the small, minor, insignificant details. And that's why Indians are always fighting over small things. That's why Indians can never see the big picture. The education system is ruining the country. It is ruining the children of the country. All you focus on, hey, you are wrong, you made this spelling wrong. Hey, you are wrong, you got this wrong. Are you got the big answer right. Did you see that? No, it doesn't matter. That's why everybody in the comments says, hey, you got this wrong. No, you made this wrong. You said this wrong. Look at the big picture. Small little mistakes here and there do not matter. And similarly, when it comes to dharmic precepts, the small insignificant differences between Hinduism, Jainism, 
Buddhism, Sikhism are immaterial. They all have the same value system. They all have the same principles, the same concepts, the same precepts, the same tradition. It is the same thing. Look at the big picture. You have now you have been taught to look at the small things thus far. Now please listen to me and try to start looking at the bigger picture. It will take time to change the mindset. But you will not succeed in life unless you also understand the big picture. Because the big picture is the real picture. The small picture is only going to confuse you. Always. Look at the big picture. You will never be confused. Okay, that was a long rant. Let me not do that again. Okay, where are we? Reservations. Rishabh says, is there a need for reservations in India? If yes, then how long should it be continued in our country? You know, reservations is not a bad thing. It is implemented in a terrible way. It is implemented on the base, on the basis of the British imposed caste system, four divisions, right? And then you have these different uh, subdivisions of SCs and ST scheduled tribes and all that. For instance, you have these people. What are they called? They're called the cookie people. The Kuki people in northeast of India who are recent immigrants from Burma. Right? Now they are given the status of ST. Actually, they're not even Indians. Now they are given the status of Indians. They are given citizenship. They citizenship. They are they were people who were expelled from Burma in very recent times, and they came into India as, as migrants. It may have happened before 1947, but that doesn't change anything. Right. But now they are given the status of ST, I think, and they get all kinds of privileges that normal people don't get. So what happens is that we are, we are giving reservations on the basis of so-called hereditary castes, which were created by the British, by the, by the British bureaucracy. Now, there are so many people in various, in every so-called caste, you have very prosperous people, very rich people, and very poor people. Which means that there are people who are really rich who get privileges that they don't need but they take it and people in other so-called castes who may be really poor who may be destitute will not get any of that privilege so this is implemented in a terrible way and now it's become the one of the major components of politics if anybody tries to remove the the reservation system they're going to lose an election so unfortunately because of this sad reality every political party has to pander to caste and to reservations. What should be done actually? What should have been done? Reservations should have been given on the basis of financial status. If you come from a poor family, if you don't have funds, then you should be given free education. That's it. Free education. And maybe free um, free medical treatment. That's it. And then it all once you have free education and free medical uh, treatment, etc. Or let's say some free food from time to time then you have all the means at your disposal to succeed in life. And then there should be no uh, reservations and admissions because you gave free education to those who were financially uh, not in a good, a good situation. So reservations should only be on the basis of financial status, not on the basis of caste or whatever the hell else there is. And reservations should be in education until the lower and middle education, like up to 10th, 12th standard. After that, whatever your academic performance is, that should be the only sole basis for admission into higher education. 
college, university, etc. So that gives everybody the same level playing field when they are students. That's how it should be implemented. But today we have reservations in everything, in government sector, in, in IITs, in colleges, in universities, in government jobs. They Some people are trying to uh, push reservations in, even into the private sector, which will completely ruin India. So reservations are not a bad thing, but they have to be implemented properly on the basis of financial condition. No matter what so-called caste you're from, if you are financially poor, you should be given free education and whatever else should be given. That is the fair way of doing it. I don't think anybody should have an objection to that. right? And again, that should only be continued as long as India is a poor country. Once India becomes a middle income nation, there should be no reservation as long as everybody is reasonably uh, prosperous. All right, let's take some other questions. Mm. Did ancient Indians have any contact with the Native Americans and Native Australians? We have no evidence for Native Americans, but like I have explained, Indians had contact with the Native Australians. Today's Native Australians, Indigenous Australians have a significant, not a significant, but a non-insignificant amount of Indian DNA. So you can look at my previous answers and you will get the details. Okay, okay, okay. Let's see more questions. How much knowledge did we lose in the books that were burned in the ancient universities? Almost all of our knowledge, all of the records of the distant past. So that's why we lost so much. And that's why they said that Indians are people who don't record history in the written form, which is a lie. But yeah, we lost all of our knowledge. The library is burned for months. So you can imagine how many millions and millions of ancient manuscripts were destroyed. I would say more than 95% of the knowledge would have been destroyed in that. Whatever is left, maybe about 5%, 10% at most. And that too is lying and crumbling. The ASI is supposed to safeguard those manuscripts to digitize them. Nothing is happening. They are lying in some dusty corner, crumbling into dust. And that is the status of the ASI and the government of India, which simply doesn't care about India's incredibly rich heritage. I heard about this. North Korea bans laughter and leisure activities for 11 days on the death anniversary of its previous dictator. Awesome. What can I say? It must be fun to be a North Korean. <laughs> can, how can we change the constitution? What are the ways? I, You know what? I am not an expert in Indian law, Indian constitution, all that stuff. Maybe... Uh, so I cannot say for sure. I, I get the feeling it is not possible to change it through the constitutional means. Uh, recently, we know that uh, Prime Minister Modi, I mean, uh, in the in the first term, he tried to build bring about some reforms in the way the ju judges were appointed and the judges threw it out. The constitution was amended. I think it was called the NJAC or something. The entire process was done, a small amendment in the constitution and the judiciary threw it out. They threw out the will of the people of India. So it is very hard to make any changes in this system. I, is there a mechanism to change the entire constitution and bring and throw this one out and bring in a new one? I don't know. Maybe I should talk to a legal expert and maybe I should have a discussion with somebody who understands these things. So maybe something for the future. 
All right. Let's see some more questions. Uh, Bhakti movement, I am not a specialist in that. I have never found it very interesting. Apologies to anybody who finds it interesting. I did not find it interesting. Okay, so this is the question. Could you talk about the Bhakti movement of India, specifically the contribution of Shankaracharya, Ramanujacharya, and Madhavacharya? Not my specialty. This is not something I have studied in detail. I am saying this honestly. I have not studied this in detail. So I am today, December 19, 2021, not the right person to answer this. Maybe two, three months down the line, I may be the right person if I read about this. So let's see. Maybe it is an important chapter in India's history during the foreign occupation. Maybe it, it contributed something to the survival of India's civilization and culture. So I will read about this. And in a future episode, please ask me again. Or if I remember, I will do it myself and I will answer this question. But thank you for the question. It is certainly a good question. Difference between Yadavanshi Rajputs and Yadavs? No idea. No interest in this. I am tired of these little differences. They are the same people. That's all I care about. Do we have any other questions that are fascinating? <laughs> Was the Andaman and Nicobar Islands always part of India? You know, in the past, Indian civilization was spread all the way to the Philippines. Right? See, India is not a nation state. Once again, we look at things from a certain perspective, from a narrow perspective. Nation state. Everything is nation, nation, nation. In the past, there were no nations. There were no nations before the Treaty of Westphalia, uh, two, three hundred years ago. This is a new European system that has been implemented. Nations with clear, defined political boundaries and passports and visas. In the past, there was no such thing. In the past, you could just walk or sit on a horse, sit on a camel, sit on a donkey, if you wish, sit on a zebra and travel. And as long as you were a respectable individual and you had good intentions, you had a clear stated purpose that I am traveling to so, traveling to so and so place, I am passing through, people would not stop you. There was, there was no visa, there was no passport. You could just travel as long as you were a respectable individual and you had a clear purpose. Today, because the West stole all the wealth from the East. That's why they have created all these restrictions on travel because they don't want the Eastern year, Easterners, the poor people of, of today, whose wealth has been stolen, to come into the West. Of course, now there is a certain kind of immigration happening, only a certain kind of immigration, which they are engineering right now, which is a different story. So in the past, we did not have these nation states. India was sometimes an enormous unified empire. Sometimes it was a combination, a collection of smaller kingdoms, but it was always one civilization. India is a civilizational entity. India is a civilization state. And in the past, the civilization state extended all the way to the Philippines. It, it included present-day Burma, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Philippines, Yunnan, the so-called Yunnan province of China, even China and Japan and Korea, because it was all part of the same civilizational umbrella. So were the Andaman and Nicobar Islands part of this? Of course they were part of this. Of course. There is no question about it. It is our possession, it is our territory, and it has historically 
always been ours. Okay, what else do we have? Did our Vedic ancestors acquire most of the knowledge by practicing dhyana and especially by consuming psychedelics? Should it be allowed to be used by today's generation? Psychedelics are a shortcut. They give you some visions and hallucinations and some experiences as a shortcut. But you don't know what to make of it. You don't know what to make of it. I have never consumed any of what, what is it called? Uh, ayahuasca, LSD, whatever. These are psychedelics, yeah. So uh, I personally have no experience of that, but some people do that. I have nothing against that. Uh, our ancestors did not acquire all this knowledge by consuming psychedelics and getting some random visions and random experiences. Their practice was focused there was no shortcut to it. It took years. It's called dhyana. Yes, you're right. It's called dhyana. That is how all this enormous corpus of knowledge, of literature, of philosophy, of science, of spirituality, and much more was developed through dhyana. Through dhyana. That is a grueling form of meditation. It takes years. It is frustrating. If anybody has tried it, they know it's frustrating in the beginning. It takes a long, long period of perseverance and dedication and willpower to make a breakthrough and then it gets easier. Yeah, so that's what dhyana is. Dhyana, is, it's especially useful for uh, understanding the inner universe because the, it is said that the inner, inner universe is in tune with the outer universe. And that's how you get insights into the nature of the universe, into the physical laws, into the metaphysical laws and much more. So that's how our ancients, our ancestors came up with all this enormous corpus of knowledge over thousands of years. It was all built upon the foundations created by the predecessors or, or preceding generations. And that's what was destroyed in the fires, in the destruction of the libraries and universities a thousand years ago by the Turks. It's a crime against humanity, what was done. So that is how this knowledge was uh, acquired, discovered, right? Not by consuming psychedelics. There are certain uh, certain uh, paths, which are called the left-hand paths, right? The the certain sadhus, agoris, etc., they do consume certain psychedelics. I think it's... Uh, it is marijuana ganja, they call it ganja churras, etc., which are plant products. These are not uh, refined uh, narcotics. These are plant products, right? So that's what they consume. So uh, that is the practice among certain paths in certain sadhus, etc., who still do it today. Maybe it was a tradition that went back a long, long time. It is possible. So they have their own path of doing things. They want to attain personal liberation, personal moksha, or personal enlightenment in some way. But I don't think they they create the they have create those paths. Uh, people belonging to those paths have created all the knowledge, right? It is the dhyana people who have created the knowledge. Now, should psychedelics be allowed by in, in to be used by today's generation? So, first of all, I am against the consumption of any substance that is harmful to health, because it's it's going to create problems in society. If you have a higher incidence of cancer, for instance, it's not good for society. People who smoke are prone to cancer. People who chew pan tobacco are prone to getting terrible disfiguring tumors and they may lose their life because of that. So that is bad, but that is allowed. That is allowed legally. And I think uh, in India, things like uh, 
marijuana are banned are they marijuana and uh, and uh, charas which is again uh, a re- uh, the resin of the same plant i think all that is banned the question is is it more harmful than tobacco i think it's less harmful than tobacco i have heard that the ganja and and charas are not even habit forming to a large extent at least to the extent that tobacco is tobacco is extremely habit forming and they so they don't have the the harmful effects that tobacco has so i don't see why it is something that is banned it has been part of india's culture for centuries for thousands of years it's even part of india's celebrations so i think this is a stupid move to ban these elements of indian culture it is just blindly aping the west india's government in the past <laughs> has been full of mentally colonized people who think that whatever the west does is the right thing we should just blindly like a monkey copy copy what they're doing so i think that's why india banned uh, the consumption of uh, the use of of ganja and and uh, charas i think i see nothing wrong if some people want to do that is it is it is it a crime is there a victim somewhere it's 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 called a victimless crime you do something which is against the law but there are no victims you're not harming anyone so i think india needs to revisit these things i know the in practice it is not really implemented people i think they use it in festivals and all that right uh, during holi or whatever other festival they people do use these products and i don't think anybody cares the police doesn't really interfere most mostly so i think it is implemented very laxly but we need to remove these stupid provisions from india's law you know so i i think as far as it is not some horrible narcotic like heroin cocaine or or whatever else is there crystal meth as long as it's not those things i think society should, should the the legal system should should not interfere too much there is too much paternalism that we the legislators know what is best for you you are little children who don't understand anything we know what's best for you and we'll tell you what to do that attitude needs to go the legislators are not some gods they are not some superior human beings they are simply the representatives of the people of india and they need to remember that so this needs to change you know india needs to change in this manner okay let's take a couple of more questions this is a interesting question so i don't have an answer but see is is konkani older than marathi where did the konkani people originate so this is a fascinating question and why hasn't any goddamned historian in maharashtra and konkan answer this questions i assure you that you ask any historian any official historian in a, in a university they will give you some random answer they don't have the answers the konkani prakrit and marathi maharashtri prakrit may have the same origin because to an untrained ear when you hear konkani and when you hear marathi they sound pretty much similar there is clearly differences in the two languages but there is more similarity than there are differences right so i think there is clearly a a common origin maybe there was an older prakrit that gave birth to both these languages so the prakrits are languages that are upper branch languages that uh, are descendants of paninian sanskrit so konkani and marathi i think are closely aligned closely allied closely related languages and they 
I am pretty certain they have the same origin. Where did the Konkani people originate? Well, Konkan is uh, southwestern India, north of Kerala, north of Karnataka, I would say, yeah. Southern part of Maharashtra, Goa, that, that region is Konkan. Where did the people see all the people of India have the same origin? We are all the descendants of the ancient Vedic people of India. Afterwards, there were migrations internally within, within India after the drying up of the great river, the great mother river Saraswati. People traveled here and there, up and down. But everybody has the same roots. The great Chhatrapati, Shivaji Maharaj, he was a descendant of the Rajputs of, 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 of Rajasthan. It is well known. There is a clear a connection between him, a familial connection between him and Maharana Pratap. So he is a Maharashtrian. He is the greatest. Uh, he is the one king the people of Maharashtra and much of India revere because of his great actions. One of the greatest kings of India in the past one thousand years. Well, he is a. He was a Maharashtrian. He was. He was a Maratha, but he was a descendant of Rajputs. So we are all interrelated. The question is valid. I don't have the answer. You will need a historian who specializes in small regions of India to get the answer for this. I am. I have always been a big picture historian. I can give you big picture answer. I get many of the questions and I really appreciate the questions. You know, I, I get these questions. Where did the people of Garhwal originate? Where did the Garhwali language originate? Where did the people of Kumao originate from? These small regions, I unfortunately am not an expert in these topics. So I cannot answer this, these questions. I can give you a bigger, bigger picture answer from from a larger perspective. But I think you need to uh, perhaps go to your local university, ask a historian, and see if that guy or, or lady has the answer for you. And you know that's what I can say. All right, all right. Why don't you try for KBC? Could easily win one crore. Listen, I have no interest in KBC. No interest whatsoever. But yeah, thank you for the suggestion. Okay, let us take one final question for today. This is a question many people ask me. Tell us about secret societies like Illuminati and the Freemasons. How does it affect the modern world? Okay, so the Illuminati are a hypothetical society. There is no evidence for that. If it exists, it's a completely secret society. Okay, so if you talk about the Illuminati, some people will accuse you of, of indulging in conspiracy theories, which I don't entirely agree with. So Illuminati is just hypothesis. There is no actual evidence of their existence, but many people believe in the existence of a certain power structure that controls the entire world, and that's called the Illuminati, right? The Freemasons are not that secret a society. They actually do exist. So let's take a look at the Freemasons. Who are the Freemasons? Eh? Let's go here and let's search for Freemasons. So the Freemasons are another secret society, okay, uh, that are present across the world. It, it originated several centuries ago. And they are now openly out there in the world. They have their lodges and chapters worldwide. Let's see India. Freemasons India. The Grand Lodge of India. There is the website called the Grand Lodge of India. So 
we have Indian Freemasons too. And they openly say they are Freemasons, but they were, the thing about the Freemasons is that they don't disclose the real objectives. What is the objective and purpose of the, of the society of Freemasons? What is the true purpose? That is never revealed. They say our purpose is to create a better society and to instill the the principles of leadership and being a good father good good head of family etc into people and all that but there is a secret purpose which is never revealed and let's see about let's take a look at the freemasons of india so there is this website called the grand lodge of india if it will load one second let me um, okay let, there is this website called the grand lodge of india Look at the Freemasons, look at the members. So it's a secret society which has its origins in the Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Christianity, most likely Judaism. It has a secret purpose, a secret Western purpose, not an Indian purpose. It is not an Indian society, it's a foreign society. See the members of the society. Rudyard Kipling, Motilal Nehru, Surprise, my dear friends. Surprise. Behold, Swami Vivekananda, J.R.D. Tata, and so it continues. So this is a secret society whose true purpose we don't know. I'm not saying it's good or bad or whatever, but look at the individuals who are a part of that. It has nothing to do with Indian culture, Indian civilization, Indian national interest. Look at the people who are who were members of that society. I'm just showing you facts. Rudyard Kipling, for instance, he was introduced into the society by a member of the Brahma Samaj. I'm not I don't remember who it was. Was it was it Ram Mohan Roy? Was it someone else? It means the Brahma Samaj, this fellow Ram Mohan Roy. He also may have had ties with this. I'm not sure. I will I will have to look it up. But Rudyard Kipling was introduced, initiated into the society by a member of the Brahmo Samaj, an Indian. Rudyard Kipling was a British poet, writer, uh, born in Bombay, Mumbai. So he was initiated into that by a member of the Brahmo Samaj. You had people like Swami Vivekananda, who were members of the society, G.R.D. Tata, Motilal Nehru, and many other people. And we don't know what is the secret purpose of the society. That is all I can tell you. Did you learn something new today? I think at least if you are a curious person, inquisitive person, you would want to, to take this information I just showed to you, the facts I just showed to you, and look a little deeper into the true, uh, pa true nature of the society and the association of certain prominent individuals with the society. What is the real purpose? What is the need to be in the society? That's all I can say. Okay, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, I am done for today. Thank you very much for your questions. So two more sessions left in this year. We will do that and then we will welcome the new year. Take care, my friends, and I will see you very soon. Bye.